I think you reach resilience if you address and resolve trauma. Uh, you cannot be resilient if you're very traumatized. So that that's the problem with the trauma, how the experience gets stored and codified um, and encoded in the in the brain. And um, we what we do with the EMDR is to access in the neural networks that hold that information regarding the traumatic experience and reactivate the um, this natural system by this bilateral stimulation, uh, which is uh, alternating again um, the stimulation right, left, right, left, um, because that that's what what makes the uh, the process going, you know, otherwise, if you don't do any stimulation, you just talk, as you were saying. And when you talk, you're using, you know, the cortex and all the cognitive functions. But trauma doesn't um, uh, occur at a cognitive level. um, Trauma occurs also at an emotional, physical level, and also at, at a neurobiological level. So that's why EMDR is so effective. And what has been uh, proven is that EMDR is faster and more effective than other therapies. So this uh, has been also considered like in the um, in many countries like the UK uh, as a, an important treatment because it's more cost effective, you know, for, you know, for the services, for the National Health Service and all that. Everybody and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. Now today we have the fascinating technique of EMDR psychotherapy to look into. Now this is yet another show like the Parenting by Connection show that was really, really close to home as I personally had some extraordinary results with this method that really helped me turn things around at the time. It was developed uh, from the 1980s onwards by Francine Shapiro known as eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It uses a physical practice to lower the physiological reaction in the present to those traumatic experiences in the past. Now, the reason I was so struck by the method and really wanted to share the science of it here is how the model works physiologically on the reprogramming of traumatic memories with more or less instant results, results that might take years using traditional talky therapies. Why this straight-to-the-point method works, though, is still not clear to scientists. So it'll be really interesting to hear some of the different theories of how it might work today. And who better to tell us about all of that than EMDR therapist uh, and teacher and ex-president of EMDR Europe and the president of EMDR Italy, Dr. Isabel Fernandez. So as well as many, many years treating patients uh, with EMDR and teaching therapists, she also sits on several boards of organizations studying the science of psychotraumatology, like the Society of Traumatic Stress Studies. She's written various scientific papers and books and chapters on EMDR and on trauma too. Now, I've wanted to speak to a research specialist about the science of EMDR really ever since I got such surprising results so quickly. And really wanted to share this with all of uh, my friends and you the listeners so i just can't wait to get into this so without further ado let's go dr isabel fernandez welcome to chasing consciousness thank you so much for coming on the show how are you today i'm fine and thanks for having me thanks for the invitation no problem isabel now i love to start asking about my guests' earliest meaningful encounters with their conscious reflections, sometimes usually around about the start of adolescence. What were your deep questions about the world and life from that time? What can you remember that sticks out as important? 
Well, you know, I was uh, born in uh, South America and um in a in a very small town and um we usually um have these um experiences of living as groups you know sharing you know the everyday with all your neighbors with your friends with people so i remember from from the beginning that i i used to uh, to hear a lot of stories, a lot of um, um, experiences that uh, these adults were talking about. They, they were, you know, talking about traumatic experiences. I was already wondering how some things happen and how people can deal with that. So um, when I was, you know, um, in my, um, uh, I was, it was the time to, uh, choose a career at the university. I chose I chose psychology because psychology is absolutely what was fitting in in this um, main interest that I had of listening to people, understanding, and at the same time trying to give a contribution for their well-being and uh, for their balance. So um, that is what has been, you know, with me in all these years as a, as a, as a psychologist. And uh, I have been working uh, with a lot of uh, passion and, um, and in the meanwhile, you know, learning uh, many tools and uh, many strategies and approaches in order to help people overcome trauma and, and reach, you know, a balance and well-being. Wow. For that to start so early in your life shows that it was a really, really important question for you. So, Isabel, on to our main discussion for today. Before we get into the EMDR protocol and the research that's really confirmed its efficiency at, at relieving these mental health disturbances, let's talk about the disturbances themselves for a moment and, and the traumas that are sort of the origin of those disturbances in the present. Now, in EMDR, you separate between trauma with a big T and trauma with a little t. Can you just explain to us briefly the difference and how they tend to manifest themselves differently also in later life? Yeah, the uh, traumatic uh, experiences with big T uh, are the ones that we call of extreme stress. Um, that is the criteria to uh, make a diagnosis then of PTSD, of post-traumatic stress disorder, which are experiences that really threaten your integrity, your physical integrity, and uh, everything that uh, we uh, feel when we are, you know, uh, extremely in danger. And that is, you know, in the accidents, um, earthquakes, when we are, you know, um, uh, of course, exposed to um, physical violence and, um, you know, to receive sometimes a diagnosis, you know, of an illness, it could be a big T trauma. You know, if especially if it is, um, you know, a very serious illness. So um, this is big T because we have a lot of stress reactions to danger, which are natural, and um, and these uh, reactions may be long last lasting. You know, so when something happens. You know, with a big T, uh, even when it is already a past and it's over, uh, for our mind, it is still going on uh, as post-traumatic reactions. We call them uh, like the long COVID, the long trauma effect for our mind. It is they're still going on after you know, the danger is over. Mm. And um, then we have the small T trauma that are mostly interpersonal trauma, like uh, being abandoned uh, or, you know, separation or conflicts or being exposed to uh, social exclusion 
or to being exposed to conflicts because mm. our brain is a social brain and it's very sensitive to, of course, to what comes from relationships and what comes from, from significant others, especially. Mm. And do you think that this new understanding from all the research, from all the neuroscience, that even little t trauma has significant effects uh, that's leading to this raising of awareness of a trauma-aware society, uh, do you think it's justified the pushback coming from other areas of the field saying we risk to lower our resilience if we're drawing all this attention to even to small t trauma? Do you think there's anything to this criticism that uh, people are growing up less resilient if we give them this kind of victim uh, mentality of saying small t trauma is important? Yeah, this is an important concept. I think you reach resilience if you address and resolve trauma. Uh, you cannot be resilient if you're very traumatized. And, um, you know, as I said, um, our brain is, is, is very sensitive to, um, to relationships and to social um, issues. So uh, we need to solve that. And to solve that means that in, in psychotherapy, you have to neutralize the effect and the impact, the emotional impact that that had on you. If you work like that in psychotherapy, especially with the MDR, then you will be more, um, uh, more uh, free of all the emotions, anger, sense of shame, or uh, sadness that you get from, you know, uh, traumatic interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. And then you reach, if you are free from that, then you reach resilience. So there's nothing like um, being resilient if you are traumatized. You have to address trauma before that so mm. this is something that we we know this is the mechanism of our of our mind absolutely i quite agree yeah. and i think it's the right approach to the resilience question but it's an important question we've got to we've got to ad address also those criticisms and i think you know there is a risk of creating a victim mentality and and it is important that we frame the question correctly. Now, as you mentioned, one of the main areas uh, of study around EMDR is PTSD, because it's such an enormous problem for people who have had those, those very, very powerful threat experiences. Tell us a little bit about PTSD and the associated traumatic events and memories that, that leads to that becoming a diagnosis. Because I want to use it as an introduction to this sort of central objective of EMDR of reducing the perceived level of disturbance and the negative emotion that we associate with the event and with the memory. Well, in um, in, in PTSD, as uh, as we said, um, the the problem is the memory, because um, once something is over, what stays is the memory. How that experience um, is stored and. Uh, um, codified in your neural networks. So the um, the problem with uh, with trauma is that the way that the trauma then is stored in the in the brain, and we have a you know a natural um, capacity of processing stress and trauma. Not everybody that goes through experiences like that need EMDR or need to go to psychotherapy because we have this, you know, important and innate system to, to overcome and to process trauma. But when the trauma is too overwhelming, this capacity um, uh, gets blocked. And um, so what happens is that the uh, experience stays stored in memory in a dysfunctional way, which means that you have the image of that experience all the time in front of you. 
uh, you cannot sleep, you get you get very uh, uh, irritable, and uh, you have lack of concentration, and uh, you you start avoiding uh, things that may uh, recall the uh, traumatic event. So if you had a car accident, then you don't drive anymore or you get into a car with a lot of anxiety or things like that. So that that's the problem with trauma, how the experience gets stored and codified um, and encoded in the in the brain. And um, we what we do with the EMDR is to access the neural networks that hold that information regarding the traumatic experience and reactivate the um, this natural system by this bilateral stimulation that has to that consists on um, eye movements, you know, from uh, left to right or right to left, uh, which you know remind us of. Uh, um, the REM sleep um, move eye movements, and you do that for some seconds, for you know, for small sets of uh, stimulation, and then that uh, reactivates this natural um, processing system and allows the brain to complete uh, the processing that could not complete. At the time, because he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't make it by the, by itself. So we we have to uh, reactivate and help the this natural system to complete the processing. And this is what the, the EMDR protocol does. And the completion of that process gives the impression to the experiencer that the disturbance is lowered. So when they think about that memory their perceived disturbance is lower. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. When when you think of that uh, traumatic event before EMDR, you may feel a lot of um, anxiety, anger, sense of no control, you know, and you have, um, you know, very um, traumatic images in front of you before the treatment. After the treatment, when the uh, brain has completed its own process, then you can think of that and remember it as, you know, as an experience you had that is part of your history that is not disturbing you anymore in the present time. Mm. So uh, you can talk about it, you can think about it, and uh, you can remember it, but it does not make you uh, suffer in the present time, and we we do that natural many times. Also, if you can, if you think of many experiences that were very, um, I don't know, disturbing or that make you suffer in uh, childhood, in uh, teenage years, or things like that. Sometimes we look at that right now, and we don't feel anything. You know, the um, that experience and the memory of that experience has been desensitized uh, in the during the years. You know, during the the, uh, the all the years that have passed since then, and and, and you see yourself now as a strong person or as a um, capable person. And um, so it changes also the cognitive perspective that you have of that experience. So we do that all the time naturally. And um, there are some times that the brain cannot make it. And that's where we, uh, we intervene with the MDR. But one question that many people have, and I think also this is coming also from psychologists who are considering it as a as a methodology, what if we don't remember the trauma? Um, I noticed that I was free associating during the therapy uh, back to traumatic memories that I'd forgotten or perhaps even suppressed. 
do you need necessarily to remember the trauma in order to target with this this modality? Yes, you you do. I mean, sometimes what happened and what you were describing is that when you are working in another memory, by free associations, other memories come up, you know, because the system, uh, when it gets activated by the um, uh, bilateral stimulation, starts making, you know, associations and starts um, making, going to other neural networks to get more information in order to process the memory. So sometimes it associates other uh, experiences that you may have had that you were not thinking of. And um, that is very common um, in psychotherapy and is very common also in, uh, in EMDR sessions. But you need to, a memory to start with. So um, sometimes, you know, uh, you're working on memory uh, at high school, you know, when you had a problem with uh, probably a group. And uh, after that, well, you're working on that. Sometimes the same um, experience comes up that you had had in the elementary school or that you had had at home. So it's like the brain all the time is making associations and trying to say, where did I feel like that before? You know, and it turned, it, you know, the tendency is to, um, to, to get the whole picture in order to process that memory that you started from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it strikes me that there's a dissociation question here. You said, you mentioned when the, the brain is just literally not capable of, facing and processing the memory there is often a dissociation either in the behavior or in the memory itself and it seems like we need to reaccess that in order to be able to then reprocess it in the present now i just want to come back to the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing part that you just mentioned this this movement of the eyes from side to side um, because I was just so struck by how direct and physiological this is. It seems so much faster than many of my uh, friends and colleagues who've done uh, talking psychotherapy. Uh, perhaps, in my opinion, it might be because it bypasses the intellectual part, but it'd be interesting to get your point of view here. Um, talk us through in a bit more detail, because also you don't just use eye movement, do you? There are other forms of uh, bilateral uh stimulation as well yeah um yeah for those that cannot do the eye movements or you know um are have you know visual problems or are blind or things like that then we have the tapping uh which is uh alternating again um the stimulation right left right left um because that that's what what makes the uh, the process going, you know. Otherwise, if you don't do any stimulation, you just talk, as you are saying. And when you talk, you're using, you know, the cortex and all the cognitive functions. But trauma doesn't um, uh, occur at a cognitive level. It, it, um, trauma occurs also at an emotional, physical level, and also at, at a neurobiological level. So that's why EMDR is so effective because it um, uh, has you know, an effect in every single uh, level in which the traumatic experience was um, experienced. So um, EMDR, that's why it speaks the language of trauma because it is cognitive, it is emotional, it is physical and it is also neurobiological, and uh, and this is what makes it so effective. And you mentioned REM there. Is it possible that the that the Francine Shapiro noticed that this REM sleep, which happens almost directly after we fall asleep, is the brain's own way of processing the experiences from the day? And she was kind of using that same methodology. Yes, that's right. Now, we, we have understood also uh, much more than that now, 
that during um, the um, eye movements in during the session, uh, we have um, with the uh, we, we have uh, measured that with electro uh, uh, cephalography, and we have seen that um, we have the same waves of the pre-REM sleep. You know, so they are. Uh, slow waves um, um, during the it's not the same waves of the REM sleep but of the pre-REM sleep what we see in that EMDR session but the pre-REM sleep and um, the pre-REM waves are more important than the REM waves because uh, in the pre-REM um, moment the brain is going through all the networks to get information, like you're saying the daily, uh, what happened during the day, or you know other information that is out there. Uh, it goes there in order to prepare what will happen during the REM sleep, and then it uh, after it has you know, collected information from the neural networks, then it launches it in the in the dreams, in the REM sleep. So you have images, emotions, and many experiences that get associated very, very fast. And um and and of course during the REM sleep you do eye movements which help reprocess what has happened and all the information that the uh, brain has been collecting in the pre-REM. So um, this is uh, what we have seen uh, in research with MDR. We were doing this kind of research with the National Research Center, CNR of um, Rome in, uh, in Italy, which is the most important research center from the state so um so and we have been doing that also with uh, universities mm. so we're we're learning a lot of what is going on in the brain during this emdr sessions mm. and you mentioned all of the scientific research i mean now there's more than 38 control studies confirming the efficiency of eye movement technique uh, of this eye movement technique and it and it consistently treats efficiently these severe trauma and post-traumatic stress disorders. Is there anything to mention about those results? Um, just to just so the listeners are very, very clear how much this has been scientifically verified. Yeah, they are all RCTs uh, studies, the 38 um, um randomized control studies. So EMDR has been um compared to other um, to other therapies as well. And what has been uh, proven is that EMDR is faster and more effective than other therapies. So this uh, has been also considered like in the um, in many countries like the UK uh, as a, an important treatment because it makes um uh, of course, there's a research in the UK that says that it's more cost effective, you know, for, you know, for the services, for the National Health Service and all that. So that is, is very important, all that research. But we have more than 3,000 uh, articles in scientific um, journals uh, about EMDR and the application with different disorders in different situations. So there's uh, a large body of research other than the 38 RCTs that are the most important one to, to make we'll a treatment be... and effect, uh, you know, an evidence-based treatment. And of course, we'll be we'll be referencing the overview, the meta-analysis of all of those studies. Uh, in the show notes for anybody who wants to go and check that. Now, despite this widely accepted uh, efficacy for trauma um, from the general field of psychotherapy, the mechanism by which the eye movement assists this adaptive information processing isn't still completely understood. 
particularly this apparent relevance of the bilateral stimulation, so this stimulation of both the left and the right hemisphere of the brain. Now, loads of neural hypotheses about hemispheres have been proposed uh, and tested, but still none of them have come back as totally verified. Um, tell us, in your opinion, Isabel, having been following this, what are the most convincing and interesting uh, of those theories out there coming from your point of view inside the therapy room rather than just in a lab? Uh, well, I think one of the most convincing um, publications is one that has been um, published in Nature. Nature is, you know, the main and the most prestigious um, uh, journal. Um, it has an impact factor of 41.5, so it's the most uh, mentioned and referred um, uh, journal. And um, and of course, uh, in that publication, uh, what the um, researchers uh, saw and declare is that bilateral stimulation is um, activating two structures of the brain that are, you know, um, I have the, fun, the the role of processing information. And one is the superior uh, colliculus and a point of the thalamus. Um, so the thalamus is the one that is all the time processing information from the environment that comes through um, the, the five senses. You know, if I see people shouting and I hear the uh, screams and um, I, I see all the movements. I, I see that from my senses and that information goes to the thalamus saying there's something going on here. Um, you have to be prepared to run away or to, to do something. So the thalamus is, is what is um, uh, in a way uh, understanding uh, the uh, information that comes from from the environment that tells me if I'm safe or not, or if I can handle the different situations that I experience and things like that. So it has an important role in the uh, in processing information, and what we have seen um, in this. Uh, article on nature is that the bilateral stimulation um, uh, is activating one point uh, of the thalamus and the superior colliculus, which are, you know, um, do process information. We knew that EMDR helps the brain to process information, but in that article, we saw it. Um, you know, for sure, that was proven that it, it, it helps to process information. And it was, uh, uh, of course, accepted and published in Nature. Mm. So that is, that has been a breakthrough, I think, in the well, understanding definitely. the mechanism. Because it's clearly at work in these, well, particularly in the non-eye movement versions. So the tapping, the audio clicks, I mean, it does seem really, really important. And yet it has continue to be controversial as uh, none of these studies have exactly proved why. It sounds like this, this thalamus data certainly proves some sort of mechanism, but perhaps not necessary how it works. And there are, you know, the, it's obvious there's such clear reasons why researchers have considered this dual hemisphere stimulation as important, but most scientists uh, until now have, have thrown it out. For example, neuroscientist Andrew Huberman at Stanford now uh, particularly famous because he's got a brilliant, brilliant podcast. Highly recommend it to all of the listeners, the the Huberman podcast. He's championed EMDR for treat, treating trauma, like the rest of the field. But he throws out the bilateral importance, uh, as the studies have fallen short of explaining it in detail. And the only reason I mention this, is about is because one of our previous guests, the psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist, has a particular interpretation of the left, left and right hemisphere data, particularly from the split split brain uh, experiments, that in my opinion might 
account for the adaptive information aspect. He describes that that while the left hemisphere is good for reaching out and for isolating things and focusing on specific contexts, the right is really, really good at big picture thinking. It's good at integrating things that might be considered conflictory or, or opposite and including them in a sort of wider, more nuanced understanding. And I wonder if the stimulation of the right hemisphere's sort of integratory, sort of multi-perspectival approach couldn't be relevant to this debate, perhaps even more so than any neural coherence ideas that they've been testing in the lab. Do, do you do you think that this dual hemisphere stimulation is important? And um, do you think that this integratory, multi-perspectival function could could be at work? Yeah, I think it is important. You know, I have been um, working um, for many, many years as a clinician. I train clinicians, you know. I have trained more than 25,000 clinicians, psychotherapists, and, uh, and most of them say um, that some verbally addressing trauma and, you know, and trying to solve uh, some psychological disorders just by talking, um, it is very slow and not effective, and people get blocked. When they use EMDR, and when I use EMDR, I see that immediately uh, in the same session, regarding something that the client, for the client was very important and had a, a very important impact. He, um, of course, he uh, feels different at the at the end. He feels free, as we say. He feels stronger, and he feels, uh, you know, better with another cognitive perspective on what happened and on himself. If you can reach that in one session in five or 10 sessions, in some months, then um, it means that it works, you know, because the uh, all these uh, researchers that are saying uh, it's not the bilateral stimulation. And what is it? Because what we're doing is psychotherapy. What we're doing in EMDR is psychotherapy. So adding uh, the bilateral stimulation and following the, the different phases of the protocol that is very structured in order to uh, understand the processing. Uh, that is what has made the difference. But um, if you don't do that, there's a meta-analysis by Chris Lee that he uh, published in 2012, where he compared groups that were treated with um, EMDR with eye movements and without eye movements. And he saw that the people that were the, the, the group, the um, sample that was treated without movements had uh, a more significant effect on the vividity of the traumatic images and also on emotions. So, but, but um, Isabel, you my know, question is, what's your theory? I mean, obviously, it needs time to to come out in the studies, but until now, based on your intuition, when you're working with patients, what do you think is the uh, what what's your hypothesis on how the dual hemisphere stimulation is at work? Well, I I, I see that. Um, the uh, I I am stimulating a natural um, self healing um, mechanism. This is what I see, and this is my intuition. It is the um, it is the uh, client that does all the work while I do the stimulation. So it is you know I'm activating this self healing mechanism. If I don't do uh, the bilateral stimulation, this doesn't doesn't um, appear, doesn't manifest, and doesn't solve it. When he concentrates on the traumatic memory, and I do this, um, he starts making association. The images uh, start fading away 
and they are more distant. He comes down. He sees things in a different way, in a more functional, more ecological for his mind. So my uh, intuition is that I'm really uh, stimulating this natural um, self-healing. And I do that by the um, small, you know, stimulation, bilateral stimulation. So the brain is like the brain knows the uh, EMDR protocol and the EMDR protocol knows how the brain processes trauma. So you think and, it's innate? You think it's an innate processing process innate. mechanism happening between the two hemispheres? I mean, there must be a reason. <laughs> McGilchrist talks about this. He says there must be a reason we have two hemispheres that are so clearly separated, and it seems that their interaction is involved here. And that brings us back to this idea of adaptive information. And we haven't talked much yet about this history of EMDR. Um, and Francine Shapiro, uh, the originator and developer of EMDR, who, who developed the adaptive information processing model. And there's sort of three prongs to that. This, firstly, this processing of past events and adapting the information about them. And secondly, this kind of current disturbances becoming desensitized. And then thirdly, this imaginal future events, you know, this incorporating of, of, of a, a sort of methodology for the patient so that they can start to use adaptive processing more efficiently ongoing. Before we speak about these three modalities, um, just talk us through what Francine meant when she spoke about adaptive information processing. Feel free to give examples from your practice. You know, maybe there's a patient that really just, there was a story that just for you just really showed what she meant with adaptive information. Okay, adaptive means, well, the information processing is something that we do. It is independent of EMDR. Uh, we process information all the time that comes from environment and, you know, also internal information. So we, we, we function that way. That way we have a, a very complex brain and is, you know, really kept in and processing information all the time. So um, the adaptive processing information um, a model means that the um, we do process information in order to um, to solve things in an adaptive way. So something that is more functional than for me, and more ecological for me. You know, that, that, that is what adaptive means. That it goes, the, the, the drive in the, uh, in the EMDR sessions that, um, we see is to go, is that the, the, um, the, the brain goes, tries to go to reach adaptive, an adaptive view feeling comfortable and, and of course, um, feeling uh, much better. So it means that it is going all the time to, to a more functional and a more adaptive state and a state of mind. And that, that is the model, adaptive information uh, processing model. That okay. um, we, we do, we go that way. And let me, uh, make an example of um, a client of mine. She, we were working. Um, she had a, 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 her loss of her sister. Her sister um, died um, all of a sudden. And, um, and the, the worst image for her was when uh, she, uh, she kissed her uh, before the funeral, and um, and she felt that the sister was cold and stiff, you know, and she said this is the most traumatic image of of her death and of the loss. So while we started from there, doing the bilateral stimulation from that image from that moment, and. After that, she started uh, collecting memories uh, naturally and spontaneously of many things that she had done with her sister. 
and she had um, been, um, they were teenagers together, so they were fighting, they were sharing clothes, they were then, you know, doing some um, traveling together, um, they were sharing problems, they were, you know, also uh, sometimes having difficulties as sisters, you know, so she was remembering good things, important things, and also some things that, they, you know, they were not so so pleasant, but they, they had made it to, to resolve them. So that, that were, those were the, all the associations that she did. And she remember when her sister um, gave um, uh, the birth, when she delivered her baby, and then she wanted my client to be with her during the uh, all the delivery and all that. And, and she said, well, that was important because she wanted me to be with her, you know. And, uh, and then she started saying, well, I will take care of her child because uh, I saw her. I was there when she was born. So she, she will be in good hands with me, you know, and I will take care of that. So, you see, there was a lot of uh, associations and good perspectives. And, um, and while she was doing that, she was feeling more and more calm, calm and uh, more peaceful. At the end, uh, we went back to the same moment, you know, to see if it was reprocessed or not. And uh, when I tell her, when I ask her, now, if you think of the, you know, the memory where we started, you know, that image, that that moment, and uh, what do you notice now? And she said, "Well, I noticed that I'm uh, I'm kissing her. Uh, she is cold and stiff, but my my kiss." is warm you know i feel that the way i'm kissing her is warm so it is you know i i am giving her all my love my warmth i will be taking care of her child and things like that and i feel at peace you know and how disturbing is that moment right now for you and she goes now it's not disturbing because i see my warmth, and I see how I kiss her with all my love. And my kiss is a warm kiss, even if she's cold, you know. So the perspective is the key here, not the memory. It's not the trauma itself. It's about how we uh, perceive, how we, uh, our perspective on that is just absolutely extraordinary. So we, we can understand here this processing of past events, but what about this desensitization of current disturbances? It seems like your example there, she immediately had less disturbances in, in the present. Does the present simply improve because of the adaptation of our perspective? Yeah. Is it that yeah. simple? Exactly. I, I made you an example of an adaptive reprocessing, right? And her brain went to look for things that could help her to process that. Okay, this is the adaptive drive of our brain to to do that. And of course, it doesn't. Sometimes it's not enough to process the um, the um, the past to resolve everything in the uh, in the present and in the future. Sometimes we have to process many memories from the past. Our clients come to our sessions for the present. And for the future. That's what I wanted to ask you about was this third yeah. this third arm, these imaginal future events. It sounds like Shapira wants us to use visualization and narrative to to reprogram our reactions and negative self-beliefs, even regarding our, our, our yet unexperienced future. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, our, our you know, we have this capacity of visualizing things. Uh if you if you describe me of a place where I have never been, 
and you describe it to me, I will visualize it. Like I was never in, in Norway, in the, you know, in the fjords of Norway, but, you know, some friends have been describing me how that is. So I have a picture of that, you know, we, we normally do that. You know, we normal, normally have this capacity. So if we uh, visualize um, a, um, a future experience that could be anxiety provoking for us, uh, after working, after having work uh, with the past and the present, uh, I prepare my clients to visualize the next time that you will be, for instance, talking to uh, to a group if or giving a conference or you know talking to your boss or whatever it is that provokes anxiety then if if, if you uh if he visualizes himself doing that and doing that in um in a good uh in the right way you know with managing the situation and all that and doing bilateral stimulation while she is visualizing it, then for the brain it's like having been there already. When he will be in with his boss or when he will be talking to a group, at that point for the brain it's like he has done it many times before. So he will feel more comfortable. That's extraordinary. That is such an amazingly useful tool, isn't it? Now, a couple of little sort of info uh, asides. Uh, first, EMDR for kids. Is it possible? Is it effective? Um, from what age can we start without them forming some kind of uh, complex about themselves? I mean, is it a good idea? Yes, it is. Of course, uh, we, we work with children from two years old on. And of course, in that case, we have to work also with uh, with the parents, prepare the parents, because of course, he, he's too small. But if the child has been like hospitalized or has been bitten by uh, by a, bo a dog or has had you know a, a bad uh, experience, it is is a is a very good thing to really. Uh, work with it with a child as well instead okay. of waiting that you know he he develops then some anxiety or whatever mm -hmm. so we can work with children that we simplify the protocol of course but it's very effective there are many uh, publications with children as well and you mentioned also collective trauma so mass uh, crises, mass events. I mean, obviously, we've just experienced one that is still echoing through the collective unconscious, the the um, the COVID pandemic. Give us an example of how EMDR might be useful for dealing with this at a sort of collective level. Yeah, well, in, in that case, when we have mass disasters like the pandemic or the earthquake now in, uh, in Turkey or the war in Ukraine, we're working a lot with the population. Uh, we have been working in uh, in Italy for 20 years already with the main uh, earthquakes uh, that have, have been uh, happening. Yeah. And uh, with floods, uh, with, um, you know, people that have been uh, exposed to uh, a whole, you know, uh, traumatic event that has uh, had an impact in a whole community or in a whole group. And we have protocols to work with groups. And the most important thing is to work in the acute phase of trauma in order to reduce right away, you know, the arousal and all the stress reactions in order to make prevention. Uh, that's why we are working in the acute phase with mass disasters. We're working with the whole population. We have been working with the, with doctors and nurses in the pandemic because they were exposed to a very, uh, you know, dramatic and traumatic 
situations and images and uh, uh, experiences. So it was very good to work with them right away in order that they could keep functioning. Otherwise, they would start, you know, getting traumatized, avoiding some situations or, you know, and suffering. Such important work, Isabel. And it really goes right back to your childhood experience of wanting to help people. It's just so, so brilliant to know that you're using this at such a wide, uh, compassionate level as well as just as, you know, with clients. Now, we're coming to the end of our time, Isabel, but I just just wanted to wrap up uh, because it's just been so surprising. You know, I can safely say that EMDR has changed my life. You know, it's a very personal episode for me, this. I was in a really bad place um, and it really lowered my reactivity and, and it changed my perspective about, uh, you know, what had happened and it, and it changed my negative self-beliefs and allowed me to turn things around. And then it all took place in less than six months. Um, I've got friends who've been in therapy for more than 10 years I really just didn't imagine such an immediate physiological change could even be possible in psychotherapy. So I just wanted to close with you telling us how you felt when you first discovered this, when you first started working with it. Like it must have felt like you discovered a secret gem or a sort of superpower or something. Just tell us about just to close, the first times when you started to get results and how it felt and how it changed your life. And it must have been such a positive experience. Well, yes, I, I learned about EMDR the first time in a, in a, in a conference, in a um, cognitive behavioral uh, congress. It was a, a European congress. And there was um, a colleague that was doing a... Um, uh, presentation on EMDR, and while she was talking, you know, I was feeling like uh, enlightened. You know, really, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't believe what she was saying. So I went right away to to take a training. I went to to the states. I was trained on that, and when I came, and, and I saw right away the difference when I came to back to Italy. I called my friends, my colleagues, and we started to to train, you know, groups of clinicians here in uh, in Italy. Now we in this 23 years we have trained more than 25,000 and they are working in um in hospitals and in in the police, in the military. Um we have created EMDR Italy, which is a scientific society, and uh, we're part of uh, EMDR Europe. And um, so it has been a continuous development, and it it has been um, a lot of work for a lot of people that have been working pro bono also, like in mass disasters or working to... um, to be able to give the opportunity to people to be uh, supported and helped this way, you know, this is the, the most important thing for us that people have the opportunity uh, to be um, to be helped in an effective way, no matter how terrible has been the experience that you have gone through you know that uh, we can help you to overcome trauma and to make your life uh, more, you know, um, peaceful and and to uh, and to see the traumatic experience in a different way, in a more ecological way. So this is our mission to really, um, uh, you know, uh, do psychoeducation to the population to the institutions. And let me tell you, there's a lot of, um, we have had a lot of results because most of the institutions, the National Health Service are using EMDR and are implementing their work in the psychological units with EMDR, especially in um, in the National Health Service, in hospitals and that way. So it has been a very important uh, journey, 
you know, in all these years, yeah, with the MDR. And we don't know where it will take us to. I know, I mean, also research and will be all the time probably developing and letting us understand more and more how our brain works and all the capacities that we have as human beings. Oh, wow. Well, on that note, Isabel, it just remains for me to thank you for your time. Thank you so much for your generosity in sharing these these stories. And listeners, you know, if you're anything like me that uh, found themselves struggling with ideas of intellectual-based, thought-based, talk-based therapy and wanted something direct, straight to the point, um, don't just take my word for it. There are thousands of testimonials out there. The quantity of work showing how effective this is uh, should be reassuring to anyone who is having treatment-resistant depression or problems or or, uh, relationship with traumatic memories. I really can do no more than just highly recommend this, uh, certainly from my own experience. But I think from what Isabel's saying, it's pretty universal. So you can help you can get help on this don't give up and really give this a chance it's a it's a worthy investment because it's it works really really quickly so on that note thank you so much isabel fernandez to you uh suggest to go to the website uh emdreurope.com or um you know if you're from different countries in europe or to uh, emdr.com which is the um the the american website and uh, emdr.it, which is the Italian one. And all of these notes will be uh, in the show notes, so you'll be able to follow those links. Uh, also to the scientific papers, particularly this one in Nature, which seems to be getting a little bit closer to understanding the bilateral aspect. So thank you so much, Isabel Fernandez. Thanks to you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.